8. Do not become overfat. Their small size, however, makes them poor table fowls and for this reason they are not adapted to general use. The Asiatic type, which includes Brahmas, Langshans, and Cochins, are all clumsy, heavy birds, which make excellent table fowl but are poor layers and poor foragers. Brahma roosters will frequently weigh 15 pounds and can eat corn from the top of a barrel. A beginner should never attempt to keep more than one kind of chickens. To get a start, we must either buy a pen of birds or buy the eggs and raise our own stock. The latter method will take a year more than the former, as the chicks we hatch this year will be our layers a year later. Sometimes a pen of eight or ten fowls can be bought reasonably from someone who is selling out. If we buy from a breeder who is in the business they will cost about $5 a trio of two hens and a rooster. The cheapest way is to buy eggs and hatch your own stock. The usual price for hatching eggs is $1 for 15 eggs. We can safely count on hatching eight chicks from a setting, of which four may be pullets. Therefore we must allow 15 eggs for each four pullets we intend to keep the next year. The surplus cockerels can be sold for enough to pay for the cost of the eggs. If we have good luck we may hatch every egg in a setting and ten of them may be pullets. On the other hand, we may have only two or three chicks, which may all prove to be cockerels, so the above calculation is a fair average. If we start with eggs, we shall have to buy or rent some broody hens to put on the eggs. A good plan is to arrange with some farmer in the neighborhood to take charge of the eggs and to set his own hens on them. I once made such an arrangement and agreed to give him all but one of the cockerels that hatched. I was to take all the pullets. The arrangement was mutually satisfactory and he kept and fed the chicks until they were able to leave the mother hen about eight weeks. It is also possible to buy one day old chicks for about 10 or 15 cents apiece from a poultry dealer. But the safest way is to hatch your own stock. The easiest way to make a large hatch all at one time is with an incubator. There are a number of very excellent makes advertised in the farm papers and other magazines and the prices are quite reasonable. An incubator holding about a hundred eggs will cost ten or twelve dollars. There are many objections to incubators which we can learn only from practical experience. We shall not average more than fifty percent. Hatches as a rule, that is to say, for every hundred eggs we set we must not count on hatching more than fifty chicks. Incubators are a constant care. The most important objection to an incubator is that it is against the rules of most fire insurance companies to allow it to be operated in any building that the insurance policy covers. If the automatic heat regulator fails to work and the heat in our incubator runs up too high we may have a fire. At any rate, we shall lose our entire hatch. The latter is also true if the lamp goes out and the eggs become too cool. I have made a great many hatches with incubators of different makes and my experience has been that we must watch an incubator almost constantly to have success with it. The sure way to hatch chickens is with a broody hen, but at the same time incubators are perfectly satisfactory if run in a room where the temperature does not vary much a cellar is the best place. With an incubator there is always a temptation to attempt to raise more chickens than we can care for properly. Overcrowding causes more trouble than any other one thing. It is better to have a dozen chickens well cared for than a hundred that are neglected. Eggs for incubators will cost about $5 a hundred. Of course if they are from prize-winning stock the cost will be several times this amount. Before placing any eggs in an incubator it should be run for two days to be sure that the heat regulator is in working order. The usual temperature for hatching is 103 degrees and the machine should be regulated for this temperature as it comes from the factory. Full directions for operating as well as a thermometer.
will come with the machine and should be studied and understood before we begin to operate it. As the hatch progresses, the heat will run up, as it is called, and we shall need to understand how to regulate the thermostat to correct this tendency toward an increased temperature. The eggs in an incubator must be turned twice a day. To be sure that we do this thoroughly it is customary to mark the eggs before we place them in the machine. The usual mark is an X on one side of the egg and an O on the other written in lead pencil. In placing the eggs in the trays we start with all the O marks up, for instance, and at the time of the first turning leave all the X's visible, alternating this twice every day. In order to operate an incubator successfully, we shall also need a brooder, which is really an artificial mother. There is a standard make of brooder costing $5 that will accommodate 50 chicks. Brooders are very simple in construction and can be made at home. A tinsmith will have to make the heating drum. The rest of it is simply a wooden box with a curtain partition to separate the hot room from the feeding space. Ventilating holes must be provided for a supply of fresh air and a box placed at the bottom to prevent a draft from blowing out the lamp. In a very few days after we place the chicks in a brooder they should be allowed to go in and out at will. In a week or two we shall be able to teach them the way in and then by lowering the platform to the ground for a runway we can permit them to run on the ground in an enclosed runway. On rainy days we must shut them in. There is always a temptation to feed chicks too soon after they are hatched. We should always wait at least 24 hours to give them a chance to become thoroughly dry. The general custom of giving wet cornmeal for the first feed is wrong. Always feed chicks on dried food and you will avoid a great deal of sickness. An excellent first food is hard-boiled egg and cornbread made from cornmeal and water without salt and thoroughly baked until it may be crumbled. Only feed a little at a time, but feed often. Five times a day is none too much for two-week-old chicks. One successful poultryman I am acquainted with gives, as the first feed, dog biscuit crushed. All the small grains are good if they are cracked so that the chicks can eat them. The standard mixture sold by poultrymen under the name, chick food, is probably the best. It consists of cracked wheat, rye, and corn, millet seed, pinhead oatmeal, grit, and oyster shells. Do not feed meat to chicks until their pin feathers begin to show, when they may have some well-cooked lean meat, three times a week. There is quite an art in setting a hen properly. They always prefer a dry, dark place. If we are sure that there are no rats around, there is no better place to set a hen than on the ground. This is as they sit in nature and it usually seems to be the case that a hen that steals her nest will bring out more chicks than one that we have cobbled. Eggs that we are saving for hatching should be kept in a cool place but never allowed to freeze. They should be turned every day until they are set. Hen's eggs will hatch in about 21 days. The eggs that have failed to hatch at this time may be discarded. When we move a broody hen we must be sure that she will stay on her new nest before we give her any eggs. Test her with a china egg or a doorknob. If she stays on for two nights we may safely give her the setting. It is always better when convenient to set a hen where she first makes her nest. If she must be moved, do it at night with as little disturbance as possible. It is always a good plan to shut in a sitting hen and let her out once a day for feed and exercise. Do not worry if in your judgment she remains off the nest too long. The eggs require cooling to develop the air chamber properly. And as a rule the hen knows best. Young chickens are subject to a great many diseases, but if they are kept dry and warm, and if they have dried food, most of the troubles may be avoided. With all poultry, lice are a great pest. Old fowls can dust themselves and in a measure keep the pest in check, but little chicks are comparatively helpless. 
The big gray lice will be found on a chick's neck near the head. The remedy for this is to grease the feathers with Vaseline on the head and neck. The small white lice can be controlled by dusting the chicks with insect powder and by keeping the brooder absolutely clean. A weekly coat of whitewash to which some carbolic acid has been added will keep lice in check in poultry houses and is an excellent plan. Hen-hatched chicks are usually more subject to lice than those hatched in incubators and raised in brooders. As they become infected from the mother, some people say that chicks have lice on them when they are hatched. But this is not so. The first two weeks of a chick's life are the important time. If they are chilled or neglected they never get over it, but will develop into a weaklings. There are many rules and remedies for doctoring sick chickens, but the best way is to kill them. This is especially so in cases of roop or colds. The former is a very contagious disease and in last check may kill an entire pen of chickens. A man who raises 25.000 chickens annually once told me that the best medicine for a sick chicken is the axe. A very low fence will hold small chicks from straying away, but it must be absolutely tight at the bottom, as a very small opening will allow them to get through. Avoid all corners or places where they can be caught fast. The mesh of a wire fence must be fine. Ordinary chicken wire will not do. A brooder that will accommodate 50 chicks comfortably for 8 weeks will be entirely too small even for half that number after they begin to grow. As soon as they can get along without artificial heat, the chickens should be moved to a colony house and given free range. They will soon learn to roost and to find their way in and out of their new home. Especially if we move away the old one where they cannot find it. A chicken coop for grown fowls can be of almost any shape, size, or material providing that we do not crowd it to more than its proper capacity. The important thing is to have a coop that is dry, easily cleaned and with good ventilation, but without cracks to admit draughts. A roost made of 2x4 timbers set on edge with the sharp corners rounded off is better than a round perch. No matter how many roosts we provide, our chickens will always fight and quarrel to occupy the top one. Under the roost build a movable board or shelf which may easily be taken out and cleaned. Place the nest boxes under this board, close to the ground. One nest for four hens is a fair allowance. Hens prefer to nest in a dark place if possible. A modern, up-to-date coop should have a warm, windproof sleeping room and an outside scratching shed. A sleeping room should be provided with a window on the south side and reaching nearly to the floor. A hotbed sash is excellent for this purpose. The runway or yard should be as large as our purse will permit. In this yard plant a plum tree for shade. The chickens will keep the plum trees free from the curculio, a small beetle which is the principal insect pest of this fruit. This beetle is sometimes called the little Turk because he makes a mark on a plum that resembles the star and crescent of the Turkish flag. Whether we can make our poultry pay for the trouble and expense of keeping them will depend on the question of winter eggs. It is contrary to the natural habits of chickens to lay in winter, and if left to themselves they will practically stop laying when they begin to mold or shed their feathers in the fall, and will not begin again until the warm days of spring. When eggs are scarce it will be a great treat to be able to have our own supply instead of paying a high price at the grocer's. The fact that it is possible to get really fresh eggs in midwinter shows that with the proper care hens will lay. The average farm hen does not lay more than 80 eggs a year, which is hardly enough to pay for her feed. On the other hand, at an egg-laying contest held in Pennsylvania, the prize-winning pen made a record of 290 eggs per year for each hen. This was all due to better care and proper feed. The birds were healthy pullets to begin with. They had warm food and warm drinking water throughout the winter. Their coop was a bright, clean, 
dry place with an outside scratching shed. The grain was fed in a deep litter of straw to make them work to get it and thus to obtain the necessary exercise to keep down fat. The birds in this contest were all hatched early in March and were all through the mold before the cold weather came. Most of the advertised poultry feeds for winter eggs are a swindle. If we give the birds proper care we shall not require any drugs. It is an excellent plan to give a threshed straw to poultry in winter. They will work to obtain the grain and be kept busy. The usual quantity of grain for poultry is at the rate of a quart of corn or wheat to each 15 hens. A standard winter ration is the so-called hog bran mash. This is made from wheat bran, clover meal, and either cut bone or meat scraps. It will be necessary to feed this in a hopper to avoid waste and it should be given at night just before the birds go to a roost. With the grain ration in the morning, which will keep them scratching all day. Always keep some grit and oyster shells where the chickens can get it. Also feed a little charcoal occasionally. A dust bath for the hens will be appreciated in winter when the ground is frozen. Sink a soap box in a corner of the pen and sheltered from rain or snow and fill it with dry road dust. Have an extra supply to fill up the box from time to time. The best place for a chicken house is on a sandy hillside with a southern slope. A heavy clay soil with poorer drainage is very bad. Six-foot chicken wire will be high enough to enclose the run. If any of the chickens persist in flying out we must clip the flight feathers of their wings one wing. Not both. Do not put a top board on the run. If a chicken does not see something to fly to, it will seldom attempt to go over a fence, even if it is quite low. It is much better to allow chickens full liberty if they do not ruin our garden or flower beds or persist in laying in out-of-the-way places where the eggs cannot be found. XII winter sports want to wear skating skiing snowshoeing hockey if one is fortunate enough to live in a part of the country where they have old-fashioned winters. The possibilities for outdoor sports are very great and the cold weather may be made the best part of the year for healthful outdoor exercise. To enjoy winter recreations properly we must have proper clothing. An ordinary overcoat is very much out of place, except possibly for sleighing. The regulation costume for almost any outdoor sport in winter is a warm coat, a heavy sweater, woolen trousers and stockings, and stout leather shoes. If in addition we have woolen gloves or mittens and a woolen skating cap or toque, we shall be enabled to brave the coldest kind of weather, provided of course that we have warm woolen underwear. Various modifications in this costume such as high hunting boots, or leggings and a flannel shirt worn under the sweater are possible. In the far north, the universal winter footwear is moccasins. We must be careful not to dress too warmly when we expect to indulge in violent exercise. Excessive clothing will render us more liable to a sudden check of perspiration, a consequent closing of the pores and a resulting cold. Rubber boots or overshoes are very bad if worn constantly. The rubber, being waterproof, holds in the perspiration and we often find our stockings damp even when the walking is dry. Rubber boots also make our feet tender and cause cold feet. Tight shoes are also bad for the reason that they check circulation. The best footwear for a boy who lives in the country will be Indian moccasins or shoe packs worn with several pairs of lumbermen's woolen stockings. Such footwear would not do for skating, as they have no soles, but for outdoor tramping in the snow they are just the thing. No leather is thoroughly waterproof against snow water, but by frequent greasing with Montello, Neat's foot oil or Vaseline, shoes can be kept soft and practically waterproof as long as the soles and uppers are in good condition. In all winter sports, especially in Canada, the custom is to wear gaily colored goods, a Mackinac jacket made from the same material as a blanket, with very prominent stripes or plaids, 
is often worn. Closely woven goods are better than a thicker loose wheat as they are lighter, warmer, and more waterproof. Chief among winter sports is skating. There is no healthier recreation, provided that the ice is safe. Even in the coldest weather with the ice a foot thick or more we must always be sure to be on the lookout for air holes or thin places over springs. It is said that ice an inch thick will hold the weight of a man, but it is better to be sure than to be sorry, and three or four inches are much safer. A few years ago the height of the skater's art was so-called, fancy or figure, skating, but recently the tendency has been for speed rather than for grace and the old-fashioned club skates have been replaced by racing or hockey skates with much longer runners. Fancy skating for prizes is governed by rules just as any other game or sport. The contestants do not attempt figures of their own invention but strive to excel in the so-called, compulsory, figures. A fancy skater can practice from diagrams and directions just as one might practice moves in a game of chess. In printed directions for fancy skating the following abbreviations are used for the strokes, R right L left F forward B backward O outside I inside T3 LP loop B bracket RC rocker C counter supposing the figure to be executed to be the well-known, figure 8. It would be described as follows, R-F-O-L-F-O-R-F-I-L-F-I-R-B-O-L-B-O-R-B-I-L-B-I by referring to the above table the skater can easily determine just what strokes are necessary to produce the figure, properly. Racing skates should be attached to shoes of special design either by screws or rivets. The most important thing is to have the blades carefully ground by an expert. They should be keen enough to cut a hair, to become a fast skater. Practice if possible with an expert. Have him skate ahead of you and measure your stroke with his. By keeping your hands clasped behind your back your balance will not only be greatly improved but your endurance will be doubled. The sprinting stroke is a direct glide ahead with the foot straight. A trained skater can go very long distances with very little fatigue but one must carefully measure his speed to the distance to be traveled. When you can cover a measured mile in three and one half minutes you may consider yourself in the class of fast skaters. Hockey skates are somewhat shorter than racing skates although built on the same general lines. The standard length being from 9 and 1 half to 11 and 1 half inches. Hockey is one of the best winter games either outdoors or in a rink. The game of shinny or bandy, as it is called in England has been modified in this country by substituting a flat piece of rubber weighing a pound called a puck for the India rubber lacrosse ball, which weighs but 4 ounces. The best hockey sticks are made of Canadian rock elm. The whole idea of hockey is to shoot the puck through your opponent's goal and to prevent them from shooting it through yours. In practice almost any number can play hockey and have plenty of exercise. The less experienced players should when securing the puck always shoot it as quickly as possible to a more experienced player on their own side to attempt shooting the goal. Skillful passing is the most important branch of hockey and consequently good teamwork is absolutely essential to success. A regulation hockey team consists of seven players called goal, point, cover point, right center, left center, right wing, left wing. The position of goaltender is the most difficult to acquire skill in. He stands directly in front of the goal and is expected to stop the puck with hands, feet, and body. While the position of goal does not involve much skating, a goaltender should also be a good skater. His position requires more nerve and cool-headedness than any other position on the team because the final responsibility of all goals scored against his team is up to him. His position is largely a defensive one and his work at times very severe. The goalkeeper must very rarely leave his position but must depend upon the two other defensive men the point and cover point to stop the puck when it away from the direct line of the goal. 
the defensive men on a hockey team should not by any strategy or coaxing on the part of their opponents allow themselves to leave their own goal unprotected. The forwards had most of the work of shooting goals and advancing the puck. Of course such a man must be very active and a good all-round player. Hockey is a poor game in which to display grandstand playing. The player's whole idea should be to shoot the puck so that either he or some member of his team may score a goal. The rules of hockey are comparatively few and simple. The game consists of two 20-minute halves with a 10-minute intermission between. In case of a tie at the end of a game it is customary to continue until one side secures a majority of the points. A standard rink must be at least 112 feet long by 58 feet wide. Nets are 6 feet wide and 4 feet high. One of the most exciting of winter sports is skate sailing. The same principles that are applied to sailing a boat are brought into play in sailing with skates. While considerable skill is necessary to handle a skate sail well, anyone who is a good skater will soon acquire it. The direction that you go is determined by the angle at which the sail is held. When you wish to turn around or stop you simply shift its position until you run dead into the wind. A skate sail should be light and strong. A limit of 5 pounds weight is all that is necessary. The sail is a very simple device. There are a great many kinds but one of the simplest is made from a T-shaped frame of bamboo with a V-shaped piece of canvas or balloon silk sewed or wired to the frame. The best skate sails are made with a jointed frame like a fishing rod so that they may be taken apart and easily carried. While an expert can handle a sail 8 or 10 feet wide and 12 feet high it is better for the beginner to start with one much smaller. The construction of the sail and the method of holding it are shown in the diagram. Snowshoeing is another winter sport that will furnish a great deal of pleasure and will enable us to be outdoors when our less fortunate friends may be cooped up in the house. There are a number of standard shapes in snowshoes, but probably the Canadian model will be found to be the most satisfactory generally. Snowshoes should be from 24 to 44 inches long depending on the weight to be carried. In order to enjoy snowshoeing we must use moccasins. The proper method of attacheing the snowshoes is clearly shown in the diagrams. The beginner will find that snowshoeing is a very simple art to acquire, being far less difficult than skating and with far less danger of having a bad fall. The sport of ski running or skiing is practiced more generally abroad than in this country. A number of winter resorts owe their popularity largely to this sport. Skis are simply long flat pieces of wood fastened or strapped to the shoes. The best type are the so-called Norway pattern. Various lengths are used from 4 to 8 or 9 feet long, but for a beginner the shorter ones will be better. Ski running is simply coasting down steep inclines on the snow with the skis used in much the same way as a sled. The longer they are the greater the speed obtained, but the longer ones are also correspondingly hard to manage. In Norway and Sweden skis are made to order just as we might be measured for suits of clothes. The theory is that the proper length of ski will be such that the user can when standing erect and reaching above his head, just crook his forefinger over it as it stands upright. Ski shoes should be strong, with well-blocked toes. A pair of heavy school shoes are just the thing if well-made. To learn skiing we should select the slope of a hill not very steep and with no dangerous rocks or snags to run foul of. The best snow conditions are usually found two or three days after it has fallen. Fresh snow is too light to offer good skiing and snow with a crust is also bad. In running with skis on the level ground along, sweeping stride is used somewhat after the fashion of skating. The strokes should be made just as long as possible, and the skis kept close together. In going up an incline the tendency to slip backward is overcome by raising the toe of the ski slightly and bringing the heel down sharply. 
one foot should be firmly implanted before the other is moved. In going up a steep hill a zigzag course will be necessary. As an aid in ski running it is customary to employ a pair of ski poles, which are fastened to the wrist by leather thongs. They are usually made of bamboo or other light material with a wicker disc near the end to keep the pole from sinking into the soft snow. Ski poles should never be used in attempting a jump, as under these circumstances they might be very dangerous. Ski coasting is the sport that most boys will be interested in. To make a descent, begin at the top of the hill as one would in coasting with a sled and lean well forward with the skis parallel and with one foot slightly ahead of the other. The knees should be bent and the body rigid. The weight should be borne by the ball of the foot that is behind. As the start forward begins, the impulse will be to a lean back. But this impulse must be overcome or you will take a tumble in the snow as you gain speed. In jumping with skis an abrupt drop is necessary. For the beginner a few inches is sufficient. The start is made by coasting down an incline. And just before the takeoff is reached, the runner assumes a crouching attitude and then straightens up quickly, maintaining an erect attitude until he is about to land. When, as in jumping, the knees are bent slightly to break the force of landing. During the flight the skis should be kept perfectly parallel but drooping slightly behind. The various forms of coasting with toboggan sleds and bobsleds are all well known to boys who live where there are snow and hills. A sled can be steered either by dragging the foot or by shifting the sled with the hands. Sleds with flexible runners have recently been introduced and are a great improvement on the old type. One branch of carpenter work that nearly all boys attempt at some time in their lives is to make a bobsled or double runner, which is a pair of sleds fastened on either end of a board long enough to hold from 3 to 20 or 30 people. Coasting, especially with a bob, is somewhat dangerous sport, especially in cities or where the turns are sharp and there is danger of upsetting. A good bob is broad between the runners and low to the ground. The drawing shows one that almost any boy can make at little cost. Various devices are used as brakes on a bob. Most of them are found to be out of order or frozen when the time comes to use them. A brake that is made from a piece of iron bent in an angle and fastened to the side of the runners on the rear sled is the best arrangement to have. A bobsled should not cost over $10 complete with steering wheel, bell, and necessary iron work, which should be made at the blacksmith's. XII Horsemanship How to Become a Good Rider The care of a horse saddles so many branches of outdoor sport depend on a knowledge of horsemanship that every boy or girl who has the opportunity should learn to ride horseback. When once acquired, we shall never forget it. The first few lessons will make us feel discouraged, because the jolting and jarring everyone receives in learning to ride almost make it appear that we can never acquire the knack. But remember that even the cowboy has had to go through the same experience. A beginner should only ride a gentle horse, in case we do take a tumble. It is well to take our first lesson on soft ground or in a tanbark ring. There are three types of saddles generally used, the English saddle is simply a leather seat with stirrups, and while it is the most refined type and the one used for fox hunting and all expert riding in England, it is not the best kind to learn on. The army saddle and the Mexican or cowboy saddle with a pummel or box stirrups are far safer and less expensive. If you know of a dealer in second-hand army equipments you can buy a saddle and bride with excellent material at less than half the retail price of the stores. Before mounting your horse always examine carefully your saddle and bridle to see that the girths are tight, that the bridle is properly buckled, and the stirrups are the proper length. The latter is sometimes determined by placing the stirrup under the armpits and touching the saddle with the fingertips. A more accurate way is to have the straps adjusted after you are in the saddle. A beginner will prefer a short stirrup, 
but it is a bad habit to acquire. In mounting, stand on the left side and place the left foot in the stirrup. Swing the right leg over the horse and find the right stirrup with the toe just as quickly as possible. Do not jerk a restless horse or otherwise betray your excitement if he starts. Let him see by your calmness that he too should be calm. So much depends on the kind of horse you are riding that it will be difficult to say just how to handle him. A horse that is, bridle-wise, is not guided in the customary way, that island by pulling on the rein on the side you wish him to turn as one does in driving. A bridle-wise horse is guided by pressing the opposite rein against his neck. Such a horse is much easier to handle on horseback and we should try to teach our horse this method as soon as possible. There is very close understanding between a horse and rider that does not exist when a horse is driven to a carriage. A horse can be guided simply by the leg pressure or spur. The proper seat is well back in the saddle with the toe wanting almost straight ahead. In order to learn to ride quickly we must overcome any strain or tension of our muscles and try to be flexible above the waist. In this way we soon accommodate our own motion to that of the horse.